everyone. Welcome to the first podcast of Med Made Real. My name is Abhi, and co-hosting today with us is one of our podcast executives, Pardis Elmi. This is a podcast that highlights the life-changing aspects of medical treatments and procedures while giving individuals with lived experience a platform to share their stories. We are incredibly lucky to start this initiative with our guest today, Dr. Lynn Ashdown. Dr. Lynn Ashdown is a patient experience expert who advocates for patients to be included as equal stakeholders in all levels of healthcare. She has a medical degree from the University of Ottawa and was close to finishing her residency in family medicine when she began and continues to navigate a complex journey as a full-time patient. She has a master's degree in medical education that focuses on patient partnerships. She presents and participates in research and is a senior patient partner for various organizations, including the Association of Faculties of Medicine of Canada, where she is a patient partner lead advisor. She's also an investigator for the Equity and Health Systems Lab and is involved in curriculum reform, focusing on patient partnerships in medical education, as well as improving disability education within medicine. Thanks for the intro, Abby. Welcome, Dr. Ashdown, and thank you so much for being here with us today. Um, so just to start things off, we wanted to ask you if you could tell us a little bit about yourself. Perfect. Thanks, everyone, for having me. I'm honored to, to be part of to be part of the podcast. Well, um, beyond the uh, the intro, um, as as you would have heard, I'm a I call myself a physician turned complex patient. Um, also uh, a medical educator. Um, I'm, I guess, an accidental advocate. And um, as you learn more about my story, you'll probably know where where that comes from. But um, I'm also born and raised in in Ottawa, so a true um, a true Ottawa gal. And um, and with that comes uh, being a diehard Ottawa Senators fan. So go sense this year. I think we're really going to start to make our mark again. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I don't know, like Sanders in the last couple of years have been struggling a little bit, but <laughs> hopefully like yep. me, like myself being from Hamilton, you know, coming to Ottawa, like I have been starting to transition into like liking hockey in the past couple of years, but more so transi- transitioning into, um, you know, your experiences that I personally talked about on the introduction, you know, you've been very open online and within the medical community about sharing your personal journey facing uh, a life-threatening injury. And for those who have not heard your story before, um, would you please explain what happened? Sure. Um, thank you. Yeah, we'll save the, the hockey talk for an NHL podcast. <laughs> uh, but um, yeah, so I have a bit of an interesting journey. Um, obviously, I, I never set out to be sort of what I call um, uh, an ad advocate or even um, a, a patient experience expert. Um, I, I went to the University of Ottawa for medical school and then um, did my family medicine residency at uh, U of O as well and um, was just at the very end of my uh, family medicine residency. And I had actually even done my uh, family medicine certification exams. Um, but uh, I remember going to uh going to work one morning. I was in an OBSGYN rotation. And then my next memory was waking up in the ICU, not knowing obviously how I had gotten there um, and what had happened um, from my last memory to waking up in the ICU was that um, I went into sudden cardiac arrest. And um, that was from an undiagnosed um, uh, 
electrical abnormality of my heart, a congenital one called congenital long QT syndrome. Um, and so that just put me at very high risk of going into sudden cardiac arrest and often cardiac arrest is the first presentation of it. Um, and so that's what happened with me. And I had been studying in a coffee shop and sitting on a stool. So when my heart stopped, um, I actually fell dead weight to, to the ground. Um, and that fall actually caused me to have, um, multiple um, skull and cervical fractures, um, a moderate traumatic brain injury, um, and uh, a spinal cord injury. Plus, obviously, I'm sure all of you can imagine the secondary diagnoses and collateral damage um, from that. But that sort of began, and I'm coming up on the 10-year anniversary of that now, so that sort of began the change from life as I knew it as a physician to life being uh, a full-time patient. Um, and I say that not because it's my identity, but because it reflects the intimacy with which I've interacted with the healthcare system, um, including being hospitalized for the first two and a half years, um, cumulative after the accident. Um, so, so that's sort of how I became a, a physician turned patient. And, and, um, yeah, it's been a very difficult, very difficult journey over the last 10 years and one that I never would have seen coming. Um, but uh, we have to sort of, I guess, roll with the punches in life, right? And handle whatever comes at you with um, acceptance and um, try to move forward and, and make the best of it. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for sharing this. It, um, it really seems as though you've been, uh, you know, through a journey with extreme challenges that's required a tremendous amount of perseverance on your part. And I'm sure everyone listening can take away many lessons from your story. Um, and I'd just like to know a little bit more about your journey. Um, you know, you mentioned that prior to uh, you started your medical, your family medicine residency. Um, and during this residency, did the medical education you received prior to your injury create any expectations for your care when it, when you became a patient? And if so, were these expectations met? That's a really good question. And I think it, it does create expectations in that if you had asked me before my accident um, or the day of the injury, um, for whatever reason, I've kind of named it the accident in, in, in my head, um, but we'll call it that day. Um, and uh, But before that happened, if you had asked me, would I be equipped to handle life as a patient and sort of be able to understand the the patient experience, the navigating healthcare, all of those things, I, I would have said my answer was yes. Um, and um, having gone through what I've gone through, I, I realized that um, uh, I was incredibly <laughs> mistaken. Um, and, you know, I was kind of left with this feeling of, it is hard being a patient. And, and there was this thought that kind of kept going through my brain as I was trying to navigate um, healthcare as a patient. And, and it was, how can I know so much about medicine and healthcare yet feel so lost as a patient? And I, I and I do want to say, even though I talk about being incredibly lost as a patient, um, you know, I, I realized that I still came at it 
from a position of incredible privilege on so many different levels. So if I was still struggling to get by in this gigantic system that just kind of almost swallows you whole, um, how do other people manage it? Truthfully, you know, if I was sort of, I, I recognize the privilege with which I still sort of um, had within, within healthcare and, and medicine, but you know, it was so hard and continues to be hard. And the lessons that I've learned from it, it really has changed my, my perspective. And, um, you know, this accident, I had done my family medicine exams three weeks before my accident happened. And so you could actually say that I was at the peak of at least my biomedical knowledge, um, in, of my specialty. And, um, yet, I, I was about to receive a heavy dose of reality in that um, biomedical knowledge is not the full picture of what it means to be a patient. I think I can speak on behalf of everybody that like, I can't imagine how that must have felt on your end. And I know you were speaking a lot about kind of the privilege that you had in that moment, you know, being from a medical background and maybe having more knowledge than most people in that situation. Can you expand maybe a little bit more on um, what the sense of privilege was for you? Was it the knowledge piece that you have had more medical knowledge in this situation or a better kind of sense of what the hospital system looked like and what that process would look like as a patient. Um, and maybe uh, if you could touch on the most challenging part of what your recovery process was. Thank you. Um, so when I talk about privilege, absolutely. Um, the, the reality is, is that understanding the medical lingo, because um, there's a lot of medical um medical language and and medical talk and and so understanding just from a diagnosis potentially knowing more than the average patient would in terms of what that meant but also what questions to ask and knowing what resources are available um all of those kinds of kinds of things um it definitely gave me a a, a leg up it it gave me um, an advantage, just even in terms of a lot of the time, medical error that happens in, in hospital. Um, there were a lot of times where I was able to, um, not initially when my brain injury sort of, you know, when, if I was unconscious or sort of in those acute phase of the brain injury, but once I became more aware of my surroundings, um, and, and had a bit more sort of, um, yeah, just a bit more awareness and, and, functioning back, um, even being prescribed a medication that was contraindicated based on this new diagnosis that I had of congenital long QT syndrome, I was able to, when I got handed a medication, I was able to say, no, wait, like, I'm actually not supposed to be taking this medication. And so, whereas most patients, they just sort of, they're handed medications in a hospital, and they just sort of are told to swallow and they sort of do it. Um, so in, in that way, um, I, so even being able to see the amount of medical error and adverse events, but also, um, I mean, I'm a person because of the spinal cord injury, I use a wheelchair full time. So, I mean, I'm now navigating the healthcare system as a person with multiple disabilities, but one that physically really limits um, the way that you interact with your environment. But beyond that, I'm still, um, you know, for listeners that don't know, I'm 
a cisgender white woman that speaks English. And so that comes with a significant amount of privilege as well, um, is that I will never know what it's like to not have culturally safe care because of the color of my skin or the people that I love or anything like that. And so that's also comes with a lot of privilege as well. So it's sort of when I talk about privilege, it's from, you know, sort of multi, multi angles. Um, but definitely the, the knowledge in and of itself, um, kind of sets you, sets you apart. And you'll have to remind me, Pardis, what the second part of the question was. That's my brain injury. <laughs> Thank you so much for touching on that. I think you talked about a lot of really important points. Um, actually, before we go into the next question, we had a follow-up just about what you were talking about. So this piece of um, privilege in terms of knowledge, that you feel like you had this kind of background level of knowledge going in, knowing your medications, knowing what contraindications there are to certain medications, the process of how and when to take it, et cetera. Did this ever cause you more stress? Like you felt like you needed to kind of um, look into all the prescriptions and compare it to your um, conditions and try to do that on your own? Yeah, um, it is a double-edged sword because um, uh, with that, in certain ways, there's um, definitely benefits, but then there are times where... Um, multiple times throughout this journey, I've kind of said, I kind of wish I didn't know as much because, um, and one thing that I remember is um, at one point, it wasn't early on, but my neck was, when I had broken my neck, it was immobilized for a very long time. And at one point I had seen an x-ray of the fracture at C3. and even though I was aware that I had fractured it, knowing the consequences, I mean, the fact that I was even alive was pretty miraculous if you fracture C3 and that I wasn't on a ventilator, you know, that in and of itself was pretty miraculous, but then it actually created this um, fear as well that, even though my neck was immobilized at one point, you know, psychologically, I was sort of like, wow, one false move and I will be on a respirator. I will be, you know, um, not able to even move my arms or something like that. And, and so, um, it, it definitely at times kind of was, yeah, very difficult psychologically. Um, and then, but then it also, what it did was, it actually didn't allow me what I was always doing was saying, okay, well, Lynn, you fractured C3. You're lucky you're not sort of, um, you know, you're lucky you have use of your arms, you know, that you're, um, you know, not on a respirator, that sort of thing. But it didn't, I was always saying to myself, well, it could be worse. It could be worse. Um, that sort of thing. And what it, did was it actually kind of didn't allow me to grieve everything that I had lost though. Um, and, and the reality is, is that every part of my life changed. And I kept saying, you know, I almost kept trying to um, think of the positive side of things or, or that, that kind of thing. And, but all that was doing was actually just kind of blocking me from actually being able to process 
all that had happened and, and that it was okay to be upset about what had happened and, and how much it had taken from me. And so it, it was took a long time into my recovery before I even allowed myself to feel those feelings of grief for the life that I had lost. Yeah, that I just knew all of the different scenarios that could have played out. And so it it was just this weird juxtaposition of, you know, having lost so much, but then feeling like I couldn't grieve it because it could have, you know, that day could have gone any different direction. But it, I had someone point out to me at one point, they had said, you know, if you had just been sitting on the couch and gone into cardiac arrest, then you probably would have been resuscitated and nothing else would have happened. Right. So it, it they just sort of, um, kind of helped to, to reframe it. But um, yeah, I'm not sure if I very eloquently um, expressed that sort of that, that last question, but hopefully um, you got a sense of what I was trying to say. No, I mean, yes, I, we definitely did. That was incredibly insightful, you know, being here now, like, and being able to reflect on those experiences. And just to kind of go back to what you were saying before, you know, with your 10 year anniversary, you were saying coming up since the injury, um, at what point were you able to kind of process these emotions and like how long did it take for you to address the grief that you were feeling and to be able to, you know, sit here with us today and talk so openly and freely about um, this entire journey that you've been on? Yeah, um, great question. Um, I, I would say that the processing is still ongoing um, and uh, but Definitely, you know, I would describe the first year, definitely the first year um, after my accident. Um, really, I mean, the injuries were so acute that just physically, the, the focus was just on full physical, um, you know, fighting for your life, going through felt like a conveyor belt at times, just in terms of surgeries and procedures and imaging and meds, you know, it was just this ongoing, you know, at, at times I describe it, you feel like you're kind of like a boat floating downstream and like the current is just taking you along the way. And, and so that's sort of what it felt like it, that first year was just addressing all of the physical components, um, even into the first year and a half. Um, it wasn't until I think my brain, like, so there were two parts of it. A is that just physically, I mean, sort of survival, you know, in terms of, you know, our hierarchy of needs. Well, we need to have a heart that's beating. We need to, you know, nutritionally um, have, you know, nutritionally be sort of um, optimized for functioning. All of those basic needs um, needed to be met first. And so that's really what was happening in those in that first year. But um, also with my brain injury, um, my ability to process, I, I have come a tremendous way with my brain injury over the last 10 years. I mean, when I, I first sort of awoke, I couldn't even put two words together, my speech. I mean, if you had asked me, sort of eight years ago, if I would be giving any public speeches, let alone doing podcasts and all of the things that I've gone on to do, um, my answer would have been no. Um, I mean, I had to spend a tremendous amount of time um, just relearning how to speak and um, working with a speech language therapist and, you know, all of those kinds of things. Um, but definitely, I would say the true processing didn't really begin until at least year two. Um and even at that, I think being out and trying to 
being in the hospital is one thing, but then being out and seeing the realities of how different my life was, that was when the true sort of um, the grief started to kind of uh, kick in a bit and, and very much grieving the, the life that I, I had lost um, and, um, and sort of the life that I, I now have to um, accept and, and adapt to. And, and it, it definitely hasn't been easy, um, but uh, you know, and uh, you know, but there really is, no way but to look forward. Um, I mean, I can sit back and, and look at that day. And you know what, if maybe at some point, I might reach a place where I'll say, you know what, like, I'm okay that that day happened. Um, and everything that has transpired since then, I'm actually not there. If you gave me a magic wand today to say, like, can you go back and change that day, I actually would still take that wand and completely change it so that it wouldn't happen. Um but that doesn't mean that I'm not trying to look forward and make the best of, of what I've experienced. Um, and, and so there is a difference, but um, it, it's an ongoing um, because the changes are so multi-level, like it's physical, it's psychological, it's cognitive, it's social, like there's so many aspects of, of your life. Like it didn't just take one thing away from me. It took essentially almost feels like my entire Lynn, the original version of Lynn kind of died on that day. And now I'm still trying to learn who this new Lynn is and what her place is in the world. Yes. And I'm sure like, you know, with this process being ongoing, like you mentioned, what are some things that you do on a daily basis to kind of keep yourself going and keep yourself evolving from, you know, like you mentioned, you know, if you had a magic wand today, you'd wish you'd, you know, go back to that one situation, but you know, we're not offered the ability to do yeah. that, but in, in a sense that, you know, on a daily basis, is there anything specific that you do to keep yourself motivated to move forward? And if so, would you mind commenting on something that you would do? Yeah. Yeah. Great question. Um, I think uh, uh, what I do on a daily basis, um, I mean, I've always approached every part of my recovery as if it's my full-time job um, in and the the reality is, and this is where sort of, you know, a lot of my understanding of patient partnership and the patient experience and, and disability, um, you know, advocacy and, and curriculum and, and all that sort of stuff starts to come up is, is that, um, you know, my life is still very much my, I'm a very, very medically complex person, um, to the point that I probably, you know, I've had some physicians tell me that, you know, were it not for the fact that I have a medical degree myself, um, you know, I live alone. Um, I have PSW care that comes once a day to help me sort of with, uh, you know, some activities of daily living. But other than that one to two hours a day that I have of, of a PSW, I'm self-sufficient and, you know, um, uh, my, I'm constantly like kind of monitoring and making tweaks myself, um, here sort of, um, in, in my apartment. Um, but, um, you know, so it is a full-time job, um, navigating just healthcare when you are very, very medically complex. Um, the amount of time that you just spend on paperwork and trying to coordinate full, like, 
trying to coordinate appointments. I mean, you can be on hold for, you know, 30 minutes trying to get through to a specialist office or something like that. Um, uh, you know, that kind of thing. But, um, then really, I think the thing that has brought me a lot of joy, um, within my life in the last five years is getting reconnected with healthcare. Um, I somehow found my way back to healthcare when initially I kind of wanted nothing to do with it. I tried to separate. It was like, okay, well, that was Dr. Lynn. She died and she's kind of not there anymore. But without realizing it, I started to find my way back to not practicing clinically um, because I'm not able to do that, um, but being involved in medical education again. And that was something that I was actually interested in. I was actually, I had started my master's in medical education while I was a family medicine resident. And, and so, um, about six years ago, um, I, what was left for me to finish for my master's in medical education, which wasn't a small task, but it was my dissertation. And so I ended up doing my dissertation for my master's in medical education on the transformative role of what my life as a patient, um, how my life as a patient has actually created a more um, complete understanding of medical education and and the transformative role that patients can play in, in the healthcare system. So it seems like you went through a lot, uh, not only physically, but mentally from what you've been mentioning and having a very complex journey, like you said, uh, was there specific things during your care that you really appreciated or found that had a very positive impact during your experience and on your road to recovery? Yeah, thank you for um, asking that question. Um you know, and especially for um, for any medical learners um, that 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 are listening right now, some of the most impactful moments in my journey as a patient, it it was never the moments where you know I was resuscitated or you know I had emergency surgery on my brain or my neck or you know this this and that don't get me wrong those were incredibly important interventions um and you know it's the reason that I'm here today and and I'm able to you know um to 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 speak with to speak with everyone today but um I'm also here because of things that we aren't taught in, in medical education, but that are just as important to patient care. And that is actually caring for the patient. So it's not always about the biomedical sort of aspects. And, and that's really, especially when you're in med school, you're kind of inundated with all the my, biomedical stuff, you know, diagnosing and treating and, you know, um, prescribing medications and doing surgical procedures and all of these, all of these things, um, which again are important. Um, uh, but the, um, you know, some of the things that had the greatest impact, um, for, for me, was somebody just even acknowledging me by my name. Um, or I remember one time when a resident um, was leaving the room, um, he, he had said to me, is there anything else I can, I can do for you? And um, my cell phone, which you can imagine if you're in the hospital for 
years on end, your cell phone is your link to the outside world, right? And and so for whatever reason, my cell phone had gotten sort of misplaced from the the bedside table that was next to me and I couldn't reach it anymore. But you can also imagine that, um, you know, with, you know, a broken neck and being a wheelchair user, all that sort of stuff that you can't just readily get that stuff for yourself. And, and so that small act of is, can I get something for you? All I needed was my cell phone. And, and, and I was like, actually, yeah, would you mind grabbing the cell phone? And that made a big difference in sort of how I felt in that moment. Didn't take the resident any more time um, to, to do that. Um, but left an imprint such that I'm talking about it on a podcast today where I'm sure the the resident probably doesn't even remember when he asked me that, you know, kind of thing. Um, something like bringing me a warm blanket, um, you know, things like that. So what we call the, like the non-medical aspects of care and are s- some of the things that have had the greatest impact on me, you know, Part of caring for the patient, again, isn't just always prescribing and treating. One of the greatest gifts I say you could give a patient is to just be there and present and validate their suffering. That's one of the greatest gifts that you can give give a patient um, is to just be present with them in, in their suffering. And, you know, so while, you know, I absolutely not to... Um, put less emphasis on, you know, some of the heroics and, and absolutely, um, you know, a lot of the interventions that, you know, help me to be here today and continue to help me to be here today. Um, a lot of those kind of, we've referred to them in, in medicine a lot of the time as those soft skills, but I'm trying to rename it as the human skills. Um, cause soft sort of implies not, as important, but I say that they're as important. Um, they're equally important, potentially sometimes more important. And and so I I start referring to them now as human skills. And just to kind of bounce off of what you were saying about um, you know certain expectations that uh, you know patients should have with how residents physicians should treat them in a healthcare setting, um, and it seems like you may have. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but you may have gone through some experiences where you felt like, oh, like, I wish this were done differently. Um, just based on that, you know, um, what are some things you wish were different um, about your care in, in the time that, you know, you've, you've spoken about in the last 10 years? Yeah, um, I mean, there's a lot of um, ways to answer that, um, because there's a lot of things that I wish were different about our healthcare system. Um, uh, so there's like an answer from a system level, then there's answer from, you know, organizations, um, you know, then there's answer from a medical education, and then even just from direct point of care, um, between like kind of one on one. But, you know, I would say more it's more prevalent in a hospital setting and, and um, you know, as one of the things I had thought that, and I, there's a huge part in my dissertation where I talk about this is that we talk about patient centered care a lot. It's sort of 
the the buzz buzzword, the buzz phrase that is sort of used and um sort of it it is the the standard of quality care is patient-centered care. Um and I thought that I was doing that. Um and and to be honest, I think that I probably still was better. I thought that was a strength that I had as as a physician. And um, you know, I I still do think that I, I was probably better at that than the average person because I came into medicine as well with a lot of background sort of experience as well of, you know, um just life experiences and suffering and, you know, going having different points within healthcare as well, um, for myself, but also family members and, and whatnot. Um, but what I realized is that we actually, we lack a definition of what we think of what patient centered care is. And so, especially in the hospitals, when you round on patients and then you all go, you go from patient to patient, um, you know, and then, when you're discussing patients, sort of, you know, even as as a team of, you know, allied healthcare professionals, and the patient is in the middle, we think that that is patient centered care, and we've moved the pendulum from paternalistic medicine to patient centered care. But actually, patient centered care, the patient could be in the middle. And I found that I was often in the middle with all of these very, don't get me wrong, very well-intentioned healthcare professionals all surrounding me, trying to do and help me as best they can. But more often than not, especially in the hospital setting, I actually wasn't part of any of those discussions. And, and so that's a big difference. Care was done to me and not with me. And so I actually, one of the language that that I'm trying to sort of use within medical education now is patient partnered care, because that actually moves the pendulum now from patients just being the center of the discussion to actually thinking of patients as part of the healthcare team. And if they're part of the healthcare team, I mean, they're just as much of a stakeholder as every other person who's making decisions about their care. Um, and, and so um, just from, a, you know, answering that question of, what I wish, you know, things would have been better sort of in a hospital setting is more discussion with me and including me in in all of those um, d- decisions um, rather than sort of, yeah, just unilaterally having things sort of decided for me and me just being left to sort of, you know, deal with kind of the, the fallout of, of those decisions that, that were made. Um, and I think part of that is the the hospital as well. It's a very it's a very complex environment, and everyone's rushed, and we're trying to you know, and the demands on everybody in healthcare. Uh, I mean, it it is hard um, to to navigate healthcare, whether you're a healthcare professional or a patient right now. Um, so um, I, I have great um, great respect for everyone working in healthcare right now. Um, but that's definitely something that really kind of jumped out at me from the beginning and sort of had me reflecting on at times, oh, if I could go back and change how I interacted with this patient or this patient or this patient, um, I actually started saying, I would do that differently. I would do that differently. I wouldn't have said that or or that kind of thing. 
Um, so it really, really changed my whole perspective of what patient-centered care is versus patient-partnered care. That's such an important point. And I think the shift into patient-centered care is was a, a hope of kind of making it more holistic and including the patient. But having gone through that experience where you were in that position, it still feels different from being included in the conversations. And something else you mentioned was that there's a lot of kind of people in the team, like the healthcare system, there's so many different parts, like so many different professionals involved in one patient's care. And I think from our perspective, you know, just being new to clerkship and we're kind of being inserted in this team, I was wondering what your thoughts were on how uh, clerkship students can kind of facilitate these patient-partnered encounters as a student who needs to kind of refer back to their residents and their staff physicians? And how can we kind of navigate those conversations to include the patient as a partner? Great question. Um, you know, you, you really hit on something, you know, and I think that's, you know, um, that will continue to be something that you're you're dealing with as a medical student, as a resident, you know, even as a fellow where you're kind of the in-between person, right? Like you're, you're not an ultimate decision maker, but um, again, just um, remembering sort of some of the things that I had mentioned before, you don't need staff's permission to um, learn more about the patient that you're seeing, um, you know, um, or, you know, um, uh, you know, to, to bring someone if, they need some water, you know, to, to bring them unless they're MPO or something like that. Then, you know, you don't want them to, to be drinking before surgery or anything like that. But, you know, there's, there's a lot of things, all of these, again, these non-medical aspects of care that can really leave you feeling, um, either if they're lacking, it can leave a patient feeling very lost in their care, but, if done well, it can actually leave a patient feeling very secure in their care. But in terms of, um, you know, never underestimate the role that you can play in terms of advocating for your patient. Um, and it could be that, you know, if, if you think that the patient isn't being heard or, or having a voice, um, you know, it, it, it could be something as simple as, you know, during, during rounds, um, you know, asking a question of, you know, well, what does this mean for the patient? Um, what does this mean for, for the family? And, and part of it could just be something that you as a medical student aren't aware of. In, in which case people will answer the question for you, right? It could just be that you're not understanding the sort of the bigger, sort of the, the bigger picture. But, um, I mean, I think always making sure that, you know, that being curious about how the decisions will impact, um, the, the patients or their caregivers and, and family, um, and just bringing that up with your with your resident with your with your attending um that sort of thing but then also engaging in those discussions with with your with your patients um one of the things that i actually started to miss when i became a resident was as a medical student you actually had more time to spend with your patients especially like in internal medicine some of the bond that i developed with some of my patients even though it was just a, a 6 week sort of, you know, rotation, 
I got to spend a lot more time with the patients than the residents ever did, than the staff ever did. And so I got to know them at a much deeper level and was actually better situated to to actually advocate for them than the resident or the attending would be. Um, and so, again, that actually is one of is is something that's so beautiful about being a med student is that you can actually um, take a little bit of that extra time um, to, to be with them and get to, to learn from them as well, not just know them and have them have a voice, but to also learn from patients, you know, because again, sort of, I think you brought this question up talking about there's so many different healthcare workers and members of the team. And you're, I think you're probably going to discover how siloed everything is. And, and that's one thing that once I've become a patient, I actually, I understand the physio's role so much better than I ever did before. I understand the tremendous um, value and, uh, you know, uh, care that, that nurses bring. And I understand now at a far greater level what social workers do, you know, as, as physicians, you know, and then, you know, you, you write, especially when you're going through the hospitals, you know, refer OTPT social work. But then and then the OTPT and social work do their thing. But what is it that they do? Um, and, and so the patient actually experiences all of those different. They actually they're the only person that actually goes across all the different siloed health cares. Um, and so they're actually the link between all of the other um, uh, silos in, in health care. And and they can actually teach you a lot as well. Thank you so much for that advice. I think only someone with such profound lived experience can provide that outlook to others. And speaking for myself and for the MedMade Real team, it's definitely something that we will be implementing into our future careers and the way that we approach um, patient care. And it's as you mentioned, it can be just about the little things as bringing water or acknowledging, you know, if someone's glasses are there that they don't have access to their glasses, like just these small things can make um, anybody feel actually taken care of holistically rather than just whatever their condition that they're facing with is. So that's all the questions that we have for today. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Ashdown, for coming out and speaking on your experiences. Your perspective is so invaluable. And I think I can speak on behalf of all of us when saying that we can't imagine what you've gone through and the resilience that it took to get you to where you are today. So thank you for giving us a small glimpse into your life experiences. And we would love to have you on again in this podcast to dive deeper into your academic endeavors as well. But thank you so, so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And um, I hope that um, I've, uh, I've, I've imparted a little bit of wisdom to anybody that might be listening and um, also want to want to thank you, um, anybody that might be listening for actually choosing medicine um, and and choosing this this path. It's it's not a job. It is a it is a calling and it's a vocation. And it's such a I mean, 
a privilege to be part of patient lives in in that way. So so thank you as as well. Um, I I know that it's not easy to become a doctor. It's not easy to be a med student and a resident. So I understand the other side of things as well. And it's not always easy. Sometimes it's very very hard. Um, so thank you for all of um, to anybody that's listening for all of your hard work. And you know the one thing I would say is you probably impact patients more than you'll ever know. Um, so. Thank you. Thank you. And that's all for today, everyone. Um, Thank you so much for listening in. And uh, we'll see everyone next time on uh, our episode of Men Made Real. Bye.